I invite you this morning to turn with me to the book of Jude, the epistle of Jude. And we will be reading this morning from verse 5, and going a little bit further from what we have on our bulletins up to verse 19. Jude, verses 5 through 19, it only has one chapter. Jude, beginning at verse 5. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain, and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error, and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts, as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, Casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch the seventh from Adam prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, In the last time, there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. Last week, we heard from the Apostle Jude an ardent, impassioned plea for Christians to earnestly contend for the faith delivered once and for all to the saints. This is necessary, Jude suggests, because of the great danger 
the great peril posed by infiltrators in the church, religious imposters, we would call them, suggested by Jude is that they are extremely dangerous because they are often undetected. They creep into churches stealthily. They are ungodly people, as evidenced by, one, their distortion of the grace of God, Two, their devotion to a life of debauchery, a life of sensuality. And C, by their denial of the lordship of Christ. Here in verses 5 through 16, Jude discusses at length some additional features of these apostates as well as their fate. So we're looking this morning at the features of the apostates. That's what we'll cover this morning. We won't get to cover the next section, the fate of the apostates. We want to consider this morning the features of the apostate teachers. Beginning in verse 8, we find three further manifestations of their ungodly lifestyle. And it's very important that we take note of what apostate Christians look like, if we might put that designation to them, because really they are no Christians. And it's very important that we take these features very seriously because we are battling in our time with apostasy within the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're dealing with religious imposters. We are dealing with people who in the name of Christianity make all kinds of bizarre claims, ridiculous claims that are foreign to what the word of God teaches. And here in verse 8, we find that comparing the unbelieving Israelites, the fallen angels, comparing these people to the unbelieving Israelites, the fallen angels who rebelled against God, the people of Sodom and Gomorrah who indulged in sexual immorality, Jude says of these religious imposters, he says this, yet in like manner these people also relying on their dreams defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. We have in this verse three verb phrases, three main verb phrases relating to the sinful activities of these apostate teachers. And these three verb phrases are governed by the Greek participial phrase translated relying on their dreams. We look at the main verbs representing the activities, the sinful activities of these apostate Religious apostates, and first of all, these apostates are described as those who defile the flesh. And the question is, what does that mean? Well, based on typical association of sexual sin with the word defile, as in Genesis chapter 34, verses 41 and 43, uh, verse 27, Genesis chapter 34, verse 4, verse 13, verse 27, Leviticus chapter 18, Verses 20 to 24, Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 2, Hosea chapter 5 and verse 3, as well as Hosea chapter 6 and verse 10, and also the preceding verse 7 of this epistle of Jude, which mentions the sin of sexual immorality, the expression defiled flesh evidently refers to sexual licentiousness, sexual license, sexual immorality. 
Referring to the physical body, the flesh, the word of God teaches is defiled whenever one engages in sinful sexual activity of any kind. That is to say, sexual activity outside the confines of holy matrimony between a man and a woman. Word of God teaches that it is not in line with the will of purpose of God, the one to whom our bodies belong. Paul will say in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 30, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. But here we have in these religious people, these apostates, people who were professing, while professing to be Christians, were indulging their sexual lust. We have that in our time. We have in churches people who can even be sleeping around, people who can be having affairs, people who can be indulging in fornication, all the while considering themselves to be true, genuine Christians. I know this is not a pleasant topic to preach on, but here's the point. The Word of God teaches that one cannot, in the name of a true Christian, in the name of honoring Christ, live, indulge in sexual immorality of any kind. In fact, in verse 13, we see something of the wild, reckless, and shameless abandon with which these people expressed their sin. There in Jude 13, verse 13, Jude describes them as wild waves of the sea casting up the form of their own shame. They lead shameful, dissolute lives as they indulge in their sexual immoralities. Second, these apostate Jude says, despise authority. They despise authority. The question is, what authority is in view here? The Greek term that's used, kyriotes, which derives from the word kurios, meaning Lord, suggests that these apostates were particularly rejecting not so much human governmental authorities or angelic authorities, but divine authority, the authority of God, the authority of the sovereign God and, and, the, and our Lord Jesus Christ. The suggestion here is that in their sinful way of living, they discounted and discounted any notion of moral responsibility, any notion of moral accountability to the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth. In other words, they lived their lives in autonomy of God. In fact, this would be a throwback to verse 4, which we were considering last week, which states that they deny our master, our only master, and Lord Jesus Christ. So here it is, they live for the flesh, they indulge the flesh in all kinds of sexual immorality, and on top of that, they despise the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then thirdly, these apostates, Jude observes, blaspheme the glorious ones. They are blasphemous. To blaspheme, we know, is to speak contemptuously, is to speak irreverently of God or of holy, sacred things. And there's some uncertainty as to who are the glorious ones that are mentioned here in verse 8. Some Bible teachers argue that the reference might be to faithful preachers, 
Here's the point. Whereas this is a possibility, the problem is nowhere in the New Testament, in fact, nowhere in Scripture, are believers in this present life, on this side eternity, are ever referred to as the glorious ones. Indeed, glory awaits us when our Lord Jesus Christ returns. We are told that we will share in his glory. It seems more likely that the designation, the glorious ones, refer to angelic beings. Angels, we know, reflect the glory of God. That's what the Word of God teaches. They excel in wisdom and strength. They dwell in the presence of God. They reflect the glory of God. And this seems reasonable, particularly when we take into account verse 10, which says of these apostate teachers that they blaspheme all that they do not understand. And that statement, they blaspheme all that they do not understand, seems to imply that humans have very little knowledge of celestial beings. They have very little knowledge of angelic beings. Compared with verse 6, there's somewhat of an irony. And we'll come to verse 6 in another study, because just like those angels who abandoned their assigned sphere of authority, leaving their proper dwelling place, as Jude puts it in verse 6, Against God's design, against God's design for people who dwell on earth, these godless teachers rebelliously, what do they do? They intrude into the celestial realm, refusing to stay within their God-ordained boundary, as it were. We would say today they refuse to stay in their own lane. They are puffing up their minds, delving into things they know nothing about. Paul will say something of this in the book of Colossians, where they intrude into matters relating to angelic beings, and that's the kind of people Jude speaks of here. Now, the argument that's presented in verse 9 regarding the archangel Michael not pronouncing a blasphemous judgment against the devil suggests, if we look carefully at verse 9, if we look at the whole uh, verses 8 and 9, the suggestion is that these fallen angels are specifically those Jude are referring to as the glorious ones. Now, that sounds strange, isn't it? That demons, fallen angels, should be referred to as the glorious ones. In fact, that fallen angels are in view seems to be the case when we take into account 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, where Peter argues that in contrast to these apostates who blaspheme the glorious ones, here's what Peter says, angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. Michael the archangel, even though he was the arch, he is the archangel, he stood up to Michael, but he, he stood up to the devil, yet he was not blasphemous, he was not disrespectful. He simply said, the Lord rebuke you. And that these fallen angels could be described as the glorious ones should not be considered strange. It should not be considered strange when we consider that just like fallen humanity, fallen angels still retain vestiges of their pre-fall glory and power. How do we know that? We know that because Paul will let us know that Satan can pervert such glory and power to the point of performing false signs and wonders. We see that in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9. The devil can perform great 
powerful, mighty works. In fact, 2 Corinthians 11, verse 14, Paul says, And do not marvel, because even Satan can transform himself into an angel of light. These fallen angels, these demonic powers, still retain somewhat of the glory with which they were endowed at their creation. They have power, great power, enormous power. Now here's the point. Whether the glorious ones refer to the good angels or they refer to the fallen angels, the question then is why, why the apostates would blaspheme them? Why would the apostates blaspheme these holy ones? Whether they be good angels or bad angels, fallen angels, why would the apostates blaspheme them? Well, given their lawless, licentious lifestyle, and let me say this, whatever I'm going to say here, one thing is for sure, we don't know why. So these are suggestions. One suggestion is this, that given their licentious, lawless lifestyle, that is the lifestyle of the apostates, they denounced the angels who mediated the giving of the law to Moses on Mount Sinai. Here were people who we would describe as libertines. They were lawless. And the suggestion here is that they were blasphemous toward the angels. Why? Because those angels were instrumental in the giving of the very thing that they so despised, namely God's law. A second suggestion as to why these apostates would blaspheme the glorious ones, that is, angelic beings, is this, an arrogant sense of superior spirituality that stems from an overemphasis on teaching, particularly 1 Corinthians 6, verse 3, that we are to judge angels. If evil angels are in view, then according to one interpretation, these false teachers were dismissive of warnings regarding the malevolent power of evil demonic spirits. You see, just like many today who claim to rebuke and command Satan, you, hear, you have heard of that from time to time, people rebuking Satan, commanding Satan, talking to Satan. These religious imposters, it suggested, had an arrogant, flippant attitude toward these evil powers. And just like many a false, fake healer today, like many false prosperity preachers who are daring, who are presumptuous towards Satan, that is not something that angel, that the archangel Michael would do, the word of God is saying. Now going back to these three sinful activities of these apostates we find in verse 8, their indulgence in sexual sin, their despising authority, and their being blasphemous against angelic beings, we pointed out that these three verb phrases related to these sinful activities are modified by the participial phrase, dreaming ones, or relying on their dreams. These dreaming ones defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. Now, something we want to note here. Suggested in this statement is the fact that in discarding the word of God, in rejecting the word of God, these false teachers, what did they do? They appealed to their dreams. 
They appeal to their dreams, their subjective notions as their source of truth, as their canon of authority, as legitimization for their sinful way of life. They view their dreams, their impressions, these so-called manifestations they had from God as divine approval for their licentious behavior. To those who are given to dreams, to those who are given to this whole matter of sidestepping the word of God, of relying on subjective notions, of having so-called word from God, here's a sobering warning as to the ridiculous lengths to which dreams and subjective experiences can push one. These people, my friends, rejected the word of God. They rejected all notions of divine authority in the word of God. And they, relying on this notion that God spoke to them, that they had a dream, they lived it out. And through their dream, they found approval, they found legitimization for their sinful, indulgent lifestyle. The fact, beloved, is that God has given us final written form of his word known as Holy Scripture. And here's what the Bible tells us about that final word that God has given us, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. It tells us that all scripture is breathed out by God. All scripture is God-breathed, the Bible says, and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The prophet Isaiah, here's what the prophet Isaiah said. The prophet Isaiah placed a premium on the word of God when he said this to the teaching and to the testimony, if they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. The King James Version puts it, it is because there is no light in them. And we have to be wary. We must never, we must never ever be intimidated. We must never ever shrink back from those who come suggesting that they have had dreams, they have had word from God as if they had some special connection with God. We are to treat that with suspicion. Let me tell you, everything that God has to say to us, he says it here in this book called the Bible. We need no other word. We need no other experience. We need no impression. We need no dreams to give us direction. We have the sure, solid word of God. It's very interesting when we stop to think of it. Peter, in Second Peter chapter 1, is recounting his experience on the you remember on the Mount of Transfiguration with our Lord Jesus, he said, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We saw and we heard the voice of the excellent one saying, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Notice what Peter did right away. Peter would not call the attention of his readers to that experience as final validation for what God says. What did Peter do? Peter says this, but we have a more sure word of prophecy to which you do well to take heed, and that is what the word of God. Unless it is in the book, it's not good. And we need to take note of that, particularly in our time. What with all the prosperity teaching, what with all the charismania, what with all the so-called word from God, these dreams, these visions, here's the point. When it comes to what the word of God says, that's all nonsense. It's nonsense. 
And under the delusion of their dreams, it was as though these apostate teachers of Jude's day were in a state of hypnosis. They were in this state of hypnosis where they conjured up all kinds of weird, wicked, depraved ideas which worked themselves out in their immoral, ungodly lifestyle. And just like those false teachers Jude wrote about, many today, hypnotized and deluded by Satan, live out their sinful fantasies. Deconstructing the word of God, they dogmatically declare the Bible to be outdated. Redefining God's law, they argue that the Bible, the Bible's declarations regarding sexual relations have been misinterpreted. Hence, they are irrelevant to contemporary Western culture. We hear that all the time. This book, what the Bible says, is antiquated. We cannot bring it into our modern society. It will not work. It is backward. We are more progressive in our position. Such, they proudly brag about what they claim to be their God-given sexual freedom. Listen, for example, to this recent statement by a so-called professing gay Christian, citing John chapter 11, verse 43, as grounds for coming out in the open. I want you to listen to what this person had to say. Here's what he argued, and I quote, he says this, did you know that Jesus helped his friend come out in John chapter 11, verse 43? This is what it says, Jesus called out in a loud voice saying, Lazarus, come out. You see, Lazarus was locked up in a cold, dark tomb, wrapped in burial clothes, left for dead. That's exactly what so many Christians and so many churches do to LGBT people. They wrap us up and bind us up and tell us that we need to keep our identity, our true self, locked away. But Jesus, upon seeing Lazarus in this state, he says, Lazarus, come out, step in the light, take off the cloth, be who you are, come out alive I believe that this is what Jesus is speaking to every LGBT person. Come out of the tomb of shame. Take off the chains that you have bound up, that have bound you up. Step into the glory of who God made it to be, fearful and wonderfully made. Just as you are, you are beloved of God, end quote. You see what we have in our time? This is coming from Christians, professing Christians. This is in the church. In fact, in verse 10, in fact, we see one of these people, by way of summary, notice they are, they are religious, as religious apostates, they indulge in sexual licentiousness. They despise the sovereignty and lordship of Christ. They are blasphemous. In fact, Jude 10 continues to speak of their blasphemous tendency. There in verse 10, he cites them as being irreverent, ignorant, and irrational. Irreverent, ignorant, ignorant, and irrational. Here's what he says. But these people blaspheme all they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. He says they are irrational, they are beastly, 
They have no reasoning ability. And he says, with that, on top of that, they are grossly irreverent. May I suggest this? This same person I quoted some time ago, believe it or not, made the ridiculous statement. Here's what he suggests, that Jesus was a racist. How blasphemous can we get? Now in verse 11, Jude cites three forms, three forms of religious evil in which they engage, each represented by the biblical historical figures, Cain, Balaam, and Korah. And time will not allow me to develop all these, to narrate the account, to narrate the, the event related to these people. So I'm going to move on the assumption that we know these incidents. You can find these incidents. For example, you can read of Cain in Genesis chapter 4, verses 2 through 16. You can read of Balaam in Numbers 22 to 24. You can read of Korah in Numbers 16, 1 to 3, as well as verse 31 to verse 35. First of all, according to Jude... These apostate Christians, notice what he says, they walk in the way of Cain. They walk in the way of Cain. What is the way of Cain? If you know your Old Testament very well, if you know Genesis chapter 4 very well, you know what the way of Cain is. So by way of summary, what is the way of Cain? Listen, the way of Cain... It's the first of all the way of rejection of God's revelation. The way of Cain is the way of rejection of divine revelation. These two brothers brought their offerings. You remember, God had respect for one offering, He did not have respect for the other. Cain was angry. And here is the reasonable assumption that we can make. God is not an unreasonable God, which suggests there that God evidently had told them the precise kind of offering they were to bring. Cain brought of the fruit of the ground, Abel brought of the firstling of the flock. He brought a blood sacrifice, Cain brought the fruit of his labors. Now, we can't be dogmatic along this line, but suffice it to say, here is the main point that I'm suggesting. Cain evidently, clearly rejected God's requirement. He rejected the word, the re revealed word of God. What is the way of Cain? The way of Cain is this. It is the way of godless, self-willed, self-made religion. People today are concocting their own version of Christianity. They are deconstructing biblical Christianity. They are redefining Christian terms. And what we have, my friend, is a godless, Christless Christianity. The way of Cain is a way of godless self-will, self-made religion. Cain wanted to do his own thing when it came to pleasing God. God said, not so. He was angry. And here's the point. The way of Cain is the way of self-righteousness. The way of Cain is that way which relies on human wisdom, denies and opposes the Lord, his word, and his provision of redemption. You find people today, my friend, as I, we have said time and again, what are they doing? They are displacing the gospel of salvation with that which is another gospel, which really is not the gospel. 
All kinds of things today pass for the gospel. Social programs, social agenda pass for the gospel. Everything is preached except the Jesus Christ and him crucified. Everything is preached except repentance from sin and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. People today are preaching a political Christ, a social Christ. They are preaching a racial gospel, a gospel of social justice. They are following the way of Cain, the way of self-made religion. The way of Cain, beloved, is the way of stubborn impenitence and hard-heartedness. Because even when God told him, he said, listen, if you do well, he says, fine, but if you, if you continue the way you're going, sin lies at the door. God was giving Cain an opportunity to change his mind, an opportunity to repent. But what happened? Cain left the presence of God sullen. He left the presence of God angry. He left the presence of God unchanged, unconverted, impenitent, hard-hearted. And that is precisely the way of apostate Christianity. It is a way of hard-heartedness. It is a way of rebellion against God and his word. Second, according to the Apostle Jude, these apostate teachers have abandoned themselves to Balaam's error for the sake of gain. In other words, they have no problem profiteering from teaching which they know very well is erroneous teaching that is contrary to sound doctrine. For them, the truth of God's word is neither here nor there. For them, more than anything else, what matters is what's popular and hence what sells. What people want, that they will get. Don't preach on things that will cause trouble. Just preach on things that are pleasant to the ear, things that will make people happy, things that will make people unruffled, yet sadly, things that will send people to a Christless eternity. My friends, there is nothing we need other than the true, pure word of the living God. Third, according to the Apostle Jude, these apostate teachers will most certainly, they will most certainly share the fate suffered by those in Korah's rebellion. Implying there that like the sons of Korah, they are given to open opposition and rebellion against divinely constituted spiritual authority. According to verses 12 and 13, apostates, Jude describes them, what the description he gives in verses 12 and 13, they are undetected hazards in the church. Listen what Jude says, verse 12. He says there, in verse 12, he says, These are hidden reefs at your love feasts. They lie beneath the surface. They lie between, they lie beneath the surface. They lie unseen, undetected. And like a ship in the ocean that runs into that hidden reef and is broken apart, is Busted, we would say, destroyed. That's their impact on the church. 
And what Jude is saying, you can see why Jude says we are to contend earnestly because here's the point of false teachings and the ways of apostate teachers. They, they seep insidiously into the church. The doctrines may sound harmless. The doctrines may sound generically good, generically true, but underneath, my friends, if we're not deserving, there is poison. There is deadly error. There are deadly, damning errors that will plunge souls to a Christless hell, to a Christless eternity. He says there are hidden reefs in your fellowship. We notice there in verses 12 and 13 you know, that outwardly participating in the fellowship of the church, brazenly partaking of the holy things, they indulge in their sins at the same time. Instead of shepherding the flock, and he's talking about these teachers, these so-called pastors, he says they are self-serving, they feed themselves. Watch for preachers who are greedy for gain, who are materialistic, who think of nothing but reward, who think of nothing but remuneration. The last thing they have on their mind is that of serving our Lord Jesus and his church. Jude describes them as waterless clouds swept along by winds. And the suggestion here is this, they have nothing refreshing to offer. Like clouds without water, all they do is hide the sun. And similarly, what these people do, my friends, through their teaching, their lifestyle, their influence, they cloud the word of God. They cloud the glory of God because, you see, based on their teachings, based on their way of life, all focus is shifted from the glory of Christ He says this, fruitless trees in late autumn, that's what they are like, twice dead, uprooted. In other words, they're barren, they're empty. And these two last metaphors call attention to, they they call attention to the barrenness, the emptiness of these professors of the faith. Their uselessness. And when we summarize their lives, when we look at the picture Jude gives us, it can be clearly seen that they exhibit nothing of spiritual growth, nothing of spiritual fruitfulness, nothing of spiritual blessing to others, nothing of edification to others. They are simply, in God's word, in God's sight, nothing. Jude goes on to describe them in verse 13. He says this, Wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame. In other words, while their presence is felt, they fail to exhibit anything of true, genuine spiritual power. They're like noisy waves. All they do, Jude says, is cast up foam. Their presence is felt, yes, they have loud voices, yet they lack true, genuine spiritual power. As F.F. Bruce puts it, they are ineffectual as roaring waves whose rage expends itself in froth and foam. Like stars dislodged from their orbit, Jude suggests they are utterly aimless. They lack direction. 
According to verse 16, religious apostates are known by the fact that they are self-seeking, they are self-aggrandizing malcontents. Says Jude, here's what Jude says. These are grumblers, malcontents following their own sinful desire. My friends, one only has to listen today to what is coming from these people, what is coming from some of these pastors leading churches. One only has to hear what they readily has to say in terms of constant grumbling, constant murmuring, and fault-finding with the church of Jesus Christ. You have heard some of them. Oh, the church is not welcoming and affirming. The church is not inclusive. The church needs to stop singing hymns. One pastor, actually, and this was a woman pastor. She's standing there and she's preaching. And what is she suggesting? And here's the spirit of malcontent. She's suggesting that the church goes on a fast from white music. That's what is happening in our time. We need to throw off the European stuff. And what we're going to do this month, she says, is to sing songs from the African tradition. You see what's happening? What is being propounded in the minds of people, my friend? These things are real. Pastors are propagating the idea of, of, of people being oppressed, of the need for reparation. These things are, const are what constitute the preaching of the gospel. And what we find happening, my friend, is nothing but malcontents, grumblers, murmurs. Now, am I belittling some of what might be happening? And there's no doubt that racism exists. There's no doubt that we have a prejudicial treatment in various places, racism, hatred, and, and the like. But here's the point. Here's the point that we need to understand as Christians. We cannot make people. We cannot change people from being what they are. What we are to do is we are to preach the gospel, we are to preach the word of God, we are to teach people, and when people see positively from the word of God, what the word of God teaches about man, what the word of God teaches about man in the image of God, here's the point, there's no way in which persons can be truly converted while holding to prejudices and racism. Listen, I'm not going to get on a bandwagon of being a malcontent, of grumbling, of murmuring about this and about that. Listen, I like what one man says about it. He says the way we're going to deal with it is to stop talking about it. We cannot change people. It is a problem of the heart. And the word of God teaches we are to have such confidence in the gospel, in the word of God. The word of God is a is the, is the dynamite, it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. When the gospel is preached in the power of the Spirit of God and lives are transformed, then we will have justice, we'll have truth, we'll have real love. Malcontents, the church is promoting the oppression of women. You hear that? In Jude 16, verse 16, Jude points out as well that these apostates are arrogant and boastful in their utterances. 
Notice how Jude describes them. He says they are loudmouthed boasters. Which means that from their mouths you'll hear far more about them than you'll ever hear about Christ. You know a false teacher when he constantly refers to himself. I, I, I. Paul says, when I came among you, I desired to know nothing among you except what? Jesus Christ and him crucified. A true minister of the gospel is not a malcontent. A true minister of the gospel is not a grumbler. A true minister of the gospel does not parade himself. For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord. And ourselves, Paul says, your servants for Jesus' sake. Notice as well in verse 16, a mark of apostate preachers, a mark of apostate Christians is that they engage in personality cult. They pander to people of wealth, people of influence for their financial profit, which means that they are more about pleasing men than they are about pleasing God. Notice what Jude says there in verse 16. He says there in verse 16, how that they, the essence of what he says, I'm trying to find it, my Bible is so thin, the pages are so thin, it's so hard to turn, but I'm going to get there. He says there in verse number 16, he says, these are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters. Here it comes, showing favoritism to gain advantage. Here, even in the garb of Christianity and under the guise of being ministers of the gospel, they'll what? Virtue signal. That's the idea here. That's a big thing in our time, right? They'll virtue signal to the popular ungodly culture, siding with the wicked so as to gain social respectability, so as not to come under the scourge of persecution. They love the praises of men more than the praise of God. John chapter 12, verse 43. All this is to say that they are not true servants of God. I watch it every day. I see, I hear it. They pander to people of influence or to the popular culture. They try to so-called identify with the popular culture by compromising the gospel, compromising the word of God. And instead of calling a spade a spade, they join with the culture. They use the vocabulary of the culture. And in this way, they play up to popular culture and the powers that be. Showing favoritism to gain advantage. And these very people would decry true ministers of Christ and exalt and elevate the wicked. And then we notice in verse 19, three additional features of these apostate teachers. Jude says it is these who cause divisions. Worldly people devoid of the spirit. According to Jude here, they are divisive, 
They are driven by worldly impulses and ideologies. That's what it means to be worldly, driven by worldly impulses. All that is in the world, the loss of the eyes, the loss of the flesh, the pride of life, worldly ideologies. Ideas that are not in sync with the word of God, that are not consistent with the truth of God's word. Popular ideas, ideas of the culture. Worldly people, and here's what he says, devoid of the spirit. So we have quite an extensive portrait here of false apostate Christians, of those who take on the outward forms of Christianity, of those who assume external forms of godliness, yet who are anything but Christians. What do they look like in terms of their lifestyle, in terms of their mode of operation as we close? They tend to be undetected as they operate under the cover of disguise. They stealthily slip into churches. They lead lives of shameless indulgence in sin. They're what we call libertines. They have no conviction regarding divine revelation, regarding God's truth, regarding what sin is. They dream stuff out of their minds. They live out their fantasies. They make up ridiculous, bizarre ideas, ideas that don't make sense. And as I said last week, the sad thing is that there are Christians who embrace in the culture people who promote these ideas, these bizarre ideas. They pervert the grace of God, misusing it as an opportunity to live as they please, as a license for sin. They have no use for spiritual authority. They are Christ rejectors. They are Christ haters. They are Christ deniers. Relying on their dreams, their fantasies, they reject and discard any notion of divine authoritative religion, of divine authoritative revelation as found in Scripture. This gives them the legitimization to engage in all kinds of sinful, shameful, sinful activities. They murmur, they complain, they are self-serving, they are prideful, they are arrogant, they are worldly, they lack the Spirit of God. They're spiritually empty, barren, useless, and aimless in direction. Now, Jude is saying, listen, we need to separate ourselves, we need to be distinctive, and we need to contend for the faith. Because the next thing that Jude is going to say, Jude is going to speak of the doom of these people. Oh, my friends, look, we have a lot to fight for. A lot is at stake. Issues of life and death. We need to champion the gospel. People today say, well, we should just focus on the gospel and forget these side stuff. No, these are not side stuff. And how do we know that? Because Jude says when he was going to write about the common salvation, he found it necessary to discuss these things. And that's why we have to discuss them. Because these things are hostile to the gospel. And here's the point. They do not destroy the church all at once. They destroy the church by degrees over time. They seep in. They take root. They grow until they become malignant. Until the damage is done. 
eternal damage. And that's why we need to contend, we need to champion the gospel. Nothing but the gospel. May God help us to this end, for his name's sake. Amen.